your Bibles tonight to 1 Corinthians chapter number 11. We've been talking about the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper. Last week we talked about the the elements of the Lord's Supper, and we're not going to go back over all of that. But tonight we want to talk about a different aspect, and that has to do with the purpose of the Lord's Supper. After tonight we'll have... Uh, Probably two more lessons on it and then actually schedule the Lord's Supper and have a message uh, pertaining to it. But tonight we're going to talk about the purpose of the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23, Paul says, For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread... And when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take eat, this is my body, which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup, when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood, this do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come." I'm convinced that far too often people partake of the Lord's Supper without really understanding what they're doing. Uh, more than anything else, I blame the pastors for that, but they're not entirely to blame. There are a lot of folks that, uh, you know, they know that the Lord's Supper is one of the two ordinances in the church. They know that it's something that's supposed to be important. They know that it's something that they ought to participate in, but they have never really studied the details of it like we're doing tonight. And when we do study it, they don't show up. They just, you know, assume that it's either not all of that important or they know everything that they need to know. And so they observe the Lord's Supper without really having a clue as to what they're doing. That was certainly the case here in the city of Corinth with this particular church. And their misuse of the Lord's Supper had caused all kinds of problems. And so Paul is writing to correct that situation. And it's important to notice that, that Paul was not merely expressing his opinion. You know, a lot of times the preacher will get up and say, well, I'll tell you what, you know, it's my firm conviction, or we might say something like, well, you know, I've always believed, or I think, and you know, you, you might be right, but you might be wrong. A better way to approach that is to say, the Bible says, because you know that you're on target when you do that. So, notice verse number 23, and this is a very important part of this message, he says, For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you. He wants them to understand that he is relating to them what he had received from the Lord. And then having nailed that important fact down, he goes on and he mentions four reasons why we ought to observe the Lord's Supper. But he is very mindful of the fact that they need to understand that I'm not giving you something I heard from others. I'm not giving you something that I made up in my own mind. It's not, you know, my my thoughts on the issue. I'm <coughs> telling you what the Lord told me, what the Lord showed me. And, and 
any time a preacher gets up to preach, it shouldn't be, uh, where'd Jason go? It shouldn't be flipping the coin in heads or tails. It ought to be, this is what God put on my heart. And, and you know, being human, sometimes I've got to admit, sometimes I've got to admit that whether it's the devil confusing me or the Lord scaring me or just my utter incompetence, whatever it is, there's sometimes that that it's a struggle for a preacher to know exactly what to preach. It really is. And there have been times that, you know, I've studied all week. It's not that you don't have something to preach. That's not, that's not the problem. You know, you can think of 411 different messages that you could preach, but, but you want to preach what God has put on your heart. And, and there's been sometimes I've walked up those steps and I've taken my seat and I, I've got two or three sermons dancing around in my mind. And it's not until just kind of at the last minute that the Lord, you know, says, you know, this, this is it. I, because I wanted to deliver to you what God's put on my heart. And I've got to confess, there have been a few times, a few times in this nearly half a century that that I've got up and preached and 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 wasn't sure. You say, well, what do you do then? I preach the one that talks the most about Jesus. I've done that a few times. You know, I wish I could say, I am so spiritual, I am so in touch with the Lord, that, boy, I've, I've never been in a situation where I didn't know what He wanted. Because I just figure you can't ever say too much about Christ. Amen? And if, if you're ever in doubt, why, just talk about Jesus. But Paul is emphasizing the fact that the information you're getting from me is what I got from the Lord. Now, notice the four things, four, four purposes regarding the Lord's Supper. The first one, look at verse number 25. The first is that of responsibility. Notice he says, this do ye. You might want to underline that in your Bible. This do ye. That's reason number one. It is a responsibility. And even if, if, if there was no other reason revealed to us, we would be obligated to obey this command if, if that's all that was said. If the Lord said, you know, I'm not going to tell you all of the details of the reason why or anything, just do it. Just, that, that ought to be enough. We don't have a right to pick and choose what God commands and, and uh, you know, whether we will or, or won't obey. In, in other words, the Christian life is not cafeteria style where you go through the line and you take what you want and you, and you leave what you don't like. We ought to obey whatever He says. It ought to be without reservation. It ought to be without hesitation. It ought to be without question. If God says it, do it. I've had so many people say in regards to baptism, you know, they make a profession of faith and they would say something to, to this effect. They say, well, you know, preacher, I'm, uh, I'm going to be praying about uh, getting baptized. And I always tell them the same thing. You don't need to pray about that. You don't need to pray about it. The Lord's already commanded that you do it. Just, I mean, if you've trusted Christ as your Savior, this is the next step, and that is to follow Him in baptism. So we don't need to think about it or pray about it. We just need to do it. I remember several years ago, as we were preparing for the Lord's Supper, and we had announced it, and one of the women in the church came to me and told me that uh, that she would not be observing the Lord's Supper this time because of a certain sin in her life. And she said, I don't want to be a hypocrite, and so I'm just going to 
abstain from observing the Lord's Supper. You know, I guess maybe she thought that sounded really super spiritual, you know. I don't want to be a hypocrite, so I'm just going to set this one out and I'll watch the rest of you, you know, observe the the ordinance. Uh, so rather than repent of her sin, now think about this, rather than repent of her sin, she decided that she would just disobey God and not do it. I mean, that's look, that's never the solution here. She should have confessed whatever that sin was. She should have confessed it. She should have got it right with God. And then with a clear conscience, she could have sat at the Lord's table and partaken of the Lord's Supper. Others, for no apparent reason whatsoever, just fail to attend when the ordinance is observed. I'll never forget, shortly after we moved here, and there had been a pretty good spell in between the times that we observed the Lord's Supper, and there was a particular person that, they're not here tonight, so I can say this, and you wouldn't know who it was, you know, even if they were, but they they kept asking me and asking me, well, when are we going to observe the Lord's Supper, you know? And, and they'd ask again and again. And guess what happens? I, I schedule the Lord's Supper and we observe it and they don't even show up. They're not even here. Now, you know, I know somebody can say, and, and, and by the way, it wasn't because of sickness. I'll just leave it at that. But I'm, for someone to be so concerned about it and then not to even show up whenever we do it, it just doesn't make sense to me. And I know we can all be providentially hindered. I understand that. But by the way, he tells us to observe it here. This do ye. And if you're one of those that just do not care whether or not you observe the Lord's Supper, you need to remember what the Lord said there in Luke chapter 6, verse 46. And why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? In other words, what gives us the right to ignore Him? Remember, He's the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He has all authority in heaven and earth. And whenever He speaks, we ought to do it. Regardless of what the command is, that should never be the issue. Regardless of what the danger is, that should never be the issue. Regardless of whether we enjoy it or not, that's not the issue. We are under obligation to do what He tells us to do. And He says, this do ye. So it starts with responsibility. But the second thing, the second reason for observing the Lord's Supper is the fact that it is a reminder. Look in verse 24 and verse 25, we see this same phrase in each verse where he says, in remembrance of me, in remembrance of me. Those words have been carved and or painted on communion tables around the world. I mean, I can remember a time where every time you went in a Baptist church without fail, they had a communion table and always it had those words right here, this do in remembrance of me. And by the way, that's what it is all about. You could say this is a text for a thousand sermons because whenever we think about remembering Him, that there is so much to say that we can talk about it every week and never Never touch the hem of the garment. Never get through with all of the things that could be said about the Lord. Do this in remembrance of me. Have you ever thought about the important part that memorials have played throughout history? 
I always think about the children of Israel when they were delivered from Egypt. And, of course, God instituted the Passover. We already talked about that some, and I'm not going into detail, but remember He instituted the Passover to commemorate that great event. And so all down through those years of history, every year the Jews would uh, would observe the Passover. That was a reminder of the fact that they had been delivered from bondage. Then whenever they crossed over the, the Jordan, remember, God told Joshua to set up a memorial of 12 stones. He describes this in Joshua chapter 4, for the future generations. In other words, that the generations to come, they had, you know, those 12 stones and inquire about those 12 stones and what you know what it was all about and and it gave them an opportunity to explain but whenever we think about memorials there's never been a greater memorial than that of the lord's supper think about the things that memorials do number 1 memorials honor great lives and in other words it's a way of us expressing our gratitude for those that that have lived great lives and we think about here in America, of course, and we could travel all over the country and, you know, we could, we could see one statue after another or various memorials that have been erected to commemorate, you know, great people. There's Washington's Monument, Grant's Tomb, Lincoln's Memorial, and, and, and on and on and on. But when it comes to Jesus, folks, He is in a class by Himself. There is nothing Man has ever done that can even begin to compare to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who is altogether lovely. So when you partake of the Lord's Supper, remember, remember the greatness of His life. But not only the greatness of His life, we observe memorials not just to honor great lives, but also to recall great deeds. The Lord's Supper not only honors the greatest life that there ever was, it also brings to mind the greatest single deed of all time, which was the substitutionary death of the Lord Jesus Christ. You go back through history and and you read the record of all of... uh, the great things that has been accomplished. And we, we've got several of the men here in the church that are, you know, kind of shade tree historians, I guess. Uh, and by that, I mean they know a lot about history, a whole lot more than I do. And, and it's enjoyable whenever we're getting together and talking about something. And, and uh, I, I know Fred and John and, and Rick and Jeff Maxey are the four of the names that come to mind. And these guys have a lot of knowledge about history. When I was in high school, instead of being interested in history, I, I, I couldn't wait to get to the pool hall. That's all I had on my mind. And so, uh, you know, I, I, I didn't fail the class, but I made a D, I think it was, or I didn't do very well, and I wish I knew more about history, but when you think about history and all of the great deeds that have been done, it's simply amazing. But boy, when you come to the Lord's table and you think about what Jesus did, James Montgomery wrote these words. uh, He said, When to the cross I turn mine eyes and rest on Calvary, O Lamb of God, my sacrifice, I must remember Thee, And that, dear friend, is exactly what we do whenever we come to the Lord's table. Every time that we partake of the elements, we're reminded of the tremendous price He paid. That's why, and I know churches do it different, and that's their business, 
When we observe the Lord's Supper, I encourage the people ahead of time to, you know, to not get all involved in a big, deep conversation about something before the service and don't get in the corner talking about who's going to win the Super Bowl this year. Uh, Just walk in quietly, take a seat, sit there, reflect upon the Lord, just think about the Lord, and it's a very quiet, low-keyed time for us, the lights may be darkened a little bit. We don't want any distractions. When we're through, we do as Jesus did. We sing a hymn and we leave. And I tell the people, other than saying goodbye, you know, I prefer that, you know, you say, God bless your brother and, and, and leave. Don't get involved in the conversation and get people distracted from what we've just done because it's all about recalling the greatness of his life and the greatness of his deed. But then there's another reason in this regards, and that is a memorial also provides instruction. It's intended to provoke thought, to cause people to ask questions. And, and, and here in Joshua chapter number 4, we see that, and I just referred to the 12 stones, you know, taken out of the Jordan River. And he said that this may be a sign among you that when your children ask their fathers in time to come, saying, What mean ye by these stones? Then ye shall answer them, that the waters of Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord when it passed over Jordan. The waters of Jordan were cut off, and these stones shall be a memorial unto the children of Israel forever. And so this gives the coming generations an opportunity to explain to their children the great things that God has done. So when we come to the Lord's table, it gives us an opportunity to explain what Jesus did. Uh, Many of you have taught Sunday school, and some of you have taught little children in Sunday school, and... uh, and teachers, especially years ago before the day of PowerPoint and all of the modern-day technology that we have now, it was a very common thing to find flannel graph in absolutely every classroom. There'd be a chalkboard and there'd be flannel graph, and that was an important tool or an instrument by way of, of visualizing the truth that you were trying to impart to the children. And, and, and so the, you know, the kids have something to look at and helps them to understand. Well, when it comes to the Lord's Supper, it's something for us to look at. We are observing the Lord's Supper, something that we are doing, and it would be only natural that, that whether it's a child, uh, or, or whether it's a new convert, or whether it's somebody even that's unsaved, this is a wonderful opportunity for us to say to them, this is what Jesus did for us. So, memorials honor great lives, they recall great deeds, they provide instruction, but there's one other thing I want to add to that, and that is they produce inspiration. I mean... Every patriotic person knows what it feels like whenever we sing the national anthem or whenever we say the pledge and we see old glory waving in the breeze. And, you know, there's, there's just a thrill and some excitement and, and something inspiring about seeing the American flag flying in the breeze. And, and it might be that you have been inspired maybe by other memorials. Maybe you've gone to Washington, D.C., and you've seen some of those that we've talked about. 
It might be that you've been, you know, to the Alamo or some of the Civil War sites and things of that nature and things that were inspirational to you. Well, I can't think of anything more inspirational than to see a picture of what Jesus Christ did for us. And and that's what the Lord's Supper does. Now, the third thing, the third reason, going back to our text tonight, the third thing, not only should we observe it because of responsibility and the fact that it is a reminder, but also because it is a revelation. Verse 26, he says, Ye do show the Lord's death. You show the Lord's death. In other words, the Lord's Supper preaches a silent but very powerful sermon. Notice that word show. And were you to look that up in a Bible dictionary and examine that word, you would notice it's found 17 times in the New Testament. And it's translated preach, preached, show three times, declare or declaring two times, is spoken of one time, and teach one time. But ten times, see, more than all of the others combined, that word's translated preach or preached. And that's why I say the Lord's sermon is, the Lord's Supper is a sermon in itself. We show the Lord's death. This is a vivid reminder of what Jesus Christ did. And so whenever we put that cup to our lips, when we partake of that bread, we are revealing the truths of the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made for us. But then there is a fourth reason that we observe the Lord's Supper, a fourth purpose in it. Not only is it a responsibility and a reminder and a revelation, but notice the phrase, till he come. You to show the Lord's death till he come. It is a reassurance. You see, it's not just a command. It's not just a memorial and a testimony. It's also a prophecy. It causes us to look both ways, backward and forward. Are you with me? We're looking backward at what Jesus did. That's It's a reminder, but we're looking forward to something also. A preacher by the name of M.D. Dodd, who was a Southern Baptist preacher, that was back in the days when the Southern Baptists were quite conservative, especially by today's standards, so don't equate him with the modern-day Southern Baptists. For the most part, you know, that's so liberal and so forth. But M.D. Dodd said, this expression, till he come, was the password. Now, I want you to listen carefully to this. This is some historical information that will bless your heart. He says, the expression, till he come, was the password among early Christians. When they met one another in the crowded streets of the city, in dark places at night or elsewhere, their word of greeting and recognition was, till he come. Think, think about that. Think, think of these Christians passing each other in the darkness of night. They recognize each other and they look at one another, lock their eyes on one another and say, till he come. 
the pagan rulers, officers of the law and peoples were so bitter in their persecution of the Christians that it was necessary for the Christians to maintain much secrecy. One can easily imagine how the face of a Christian would light up as he met someone whom he did not know uh, and, and from whom he might fear bodily injury when that one would give the password till he come. And that password ensured him of kindness, consideration, and fellowship. But this password would do even more, he says. It would fan the flame of hope and joyful anticipation of the world to come in the hearts of those who were being persecuted and tried in this world. It would stimulate strength, create courage, and brighten hope for carrying on till He come. Remember those famous words the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica? I mean, you hear these words at nearly every funeral as it speaks about the coming of the Lord and the resurrection of the saints and the reunion of God's children all together. And there in 1 Thessalonians 4.18, he says, Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Comfort one another with these words. And the words that he's speaking of has to do with the coming of the Lord. Remember when Jesus met with the disciples in the upper room just before he was taken to be crucified, and he meets with them, and and, and try to get that picture in your mind, because he knows precisely what is going to happen. He's already tried to tell them what's going to happen, and they just really don't get it at this point. In fact, you'll remember that when he announced that he must needs go to Jerusalem and there suffer many things and be raised again the third day, and Peter literally laid hands on the Lord and said, Not so, Lord. In other words, we're not going to let that happen. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. He said, you don't know what, what you're talking about. And, and they didn't have the picture clear in their mind. But when Jesus met with them in the upper room and he is providing them instruction, John chapter 13 all the way through chapter number 17. But in chapter number 14, verse number 3, he says, let, let me go back to verse 1 so you get the connection. He says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. For in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, behold, I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. I'll come again. Wait a minute, that's exactly what we're talking about. That's what Paul is saying to the church there in Corinth. He's saying, you do show the Lord's death till He comes. And then you'll remember in Matthew chapter 26, we already read this last week and the week before, I think, as they are actually observing the very first Lord's Supper. It's being instituted there and uh, and it talks about Jesus giving them the bread and giving them the fruit of the vine. And then he made this statement. He says, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Isn't that something? I mean, the the final comments at the institution of the Lord's Supper is what? 
is a reminder of the fact that he is going to establish his kingdom and, and, and the Lord is about, of course, to be ascended back into heaven. They're going to be separated from him and, and he's simply saying that we'll not be able to sit at this table and eat of this bread and drink of this cup. I won't be able to do that with you until that day when we drink it new in my Father's kingdom. Aren't you glad that there is a kingdom and that we can be subjects of that kingdom? In the decline and, and fall of the Roman Empire, that that famous history book by Gibbon, and he made this statement. He said, the ancient and popular doctrine of the millennium appears to have been the reigning sentiment of all orthodox believers. Now, now, now keep that in mind. All believers, what he's saying, back through history, back to the time of Christ, all of them look forward to that time when Christ was going to establish His kingdom here upon the earth. Another famous preacher with the name of B.H. Carroll said, One who does not believe in the Lord's personal, visible, audible return has no place at the Lord's table. Well, I think he's right. You do show the Lord's death, what, until he comes. I mean, look, that's part of it. The fact that whenever Christ died on the cross, when He paid our sin debt, that our salvation is not just about us having our sins forgiven. That's part of it. That's wonderful that our sins have been forgiven, but there's more to it than that. There's more to it than you missing hell and making heaven. There's more to it than that because, you see, it's not even about you. It's not about me. Well, what's it all about then? Why did Christ come and why did He die and why are we saved? What's the purpose? Why would God save us? Ephesians chapter 1, three times He gives us the answer. He says that it's under the praise of His glory. Now remember, Jesus came... Not just to save your soul, not just to forgive your sin, not just to take you to heaven, not just to keep you out of hell. What Jesus did in the death, burial, and resurrection was to assure us that one day that He will rule over all of His enemies. One day He will rule with a rod of iron here on this earth. I mean literally rule and establish His kingdom, and that we're going to rule and reign with Him. Remember, whenever Adam sinned and the curse came upon the earth, man fell, and Jesus came and died on the cross to do what? To reverse the fall. To reverse the fall. You see, you and I, although we are as saved now as we will ever be, we do not yet enjoy all of the benefits that we shall have. And that's why I keep saying over and over and over again, for the Christian, the best is yet to come. It, it really, I don't care how good it is now, the best is yet to come. Because it's not about now, it's all about later and the fact that we are joint heirs with the Lord Jesus Christ. So, what Jesus did on the cross is not just about the blessings that we enjoy now. It's the blessings that we can anticipate when He sets His kingdom here upon this earth. 
And in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 37, it says, He that shall come will come and will not tarry. How many times have you heard preachers and others say, Well, you know, if the Lord tarries His coming, forget that. He's not going to. It says, He that shall come will come, just like He promised, and will not tarry. Now, I know what those people mean. I know they mean, you know, that maybe he won't come for another month or another year or whatever, and we don't know exactly when it will be. But he's not going to tarry because it's going to be, I mean, right to the second, right on time when he comes. That's the day that we're waiting for. And so you remember that as you partake of the Lord's Supper, that and you anticipate the Lord's return, our prayer ought to be exactly what John's prayer was in Revelation 22 and verse 20. He said, even so come Lord Jesus. That ought to be our prayer. I've heard Christians even talk about their fear of the second coming. Uh, them hoping that the Lord, and I've heard them say, I hope the Lord tarries His coming I hope the Lord doesn't come for a while yet. Looks like the Lord's going to come, and oh, I hope He doesn't. That's the craziest thing I ever heard in my life. Why in the world would somebody pray like that? Look, if our heart is right with God, it it ought to be the great thrill. Remember, Paul spoke of this as being what? The believer's blessed hope. That's the words he used. Blessed hope. And that is the glorious appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. So whenever you sit down at the Lord's table, and, and, and it's your responsibility, and it is a reminder to you of what He has done, it is a revelation to you, a revelation that you are proclaiming in a silent but powerful sermon, but it is also this reassurance that regardless of how bad the world gets, The best is yet to come because Jesus is coming again. And how could it be any more exciting than that? I remember teaching a class, and I've told this before, of sixth grade boys whenever I, uh, before I started pastoring and had a kid in there named Chris Cantrell and and I'll never forget, I was trying my best to describe the Lord's going to come. There's going to be a resurrection. Little Chris raised his hand, and I said, what do you want, Chris? And he said, I'll tell you who I'd hate to be. And I said, who's that? He said, I'd hate to be those grave diggers out there whenever the Lord comes and all those people start leaving there, you know. Well, I would too, unless I was going with them. But listen, as unreal as unreal as that might seem to you, because our little carnal minds can't wrap its arms around this, that in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, when we least expect it, the Bible says, the Lord's going to come back in the clouds of the air, and the dead in Christ are going to be raised first, and we which are alive, we Christians, are going to be called up together to meet them Just picture that in your mind. Here is a Sunday morning. The building is full of people. And all of a sudden, the Lord comes. The trumpet sounds. The Lord comes. And all of a sudden, let's take a guess. Ninety percent of the congregation just disappears. 
Now, I don't, you, you, you can argue all you want. Well, that just doesn't sound very scientific. Well, we're not talking science here. We're talking Bible. And, and, and this is reality. This is truth. This is what's going to happen. They're suddenly going to be taken away at that moment. Can you imagine being one of those left? And it might be that they're thinking, where did they go? And then they, maybe they'll remember, well, Brother Stone just preached about this a few weeks ago. Maybe that's what happened. And why am I still here? And Because I'm a member of this church. I remember whenever he baptized me. I even sang in the choir and I, I taught Sunday school for a year or two and why am I still here? I'm really convinced. I, look, I don't agree with Billy Graham about a lot of things down through the years. But I'll tell you, I believe he is spot on whenever he says that it's his belief that the vast majority of church members have never really truly been born again. I believe that's true, folks. Jesus said, you know, many will say to me in that day, not, not a few. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, you know, haven't we done many wonderful works in your name? And in your name we prophesied. In your name we even cast out devils. And he'll say to them, depart from me, ye workers of iniquity, for I never knew you. Boy, I'll tell you what, we need to make certain that we've been born again. Like the old preachers used to say, you know, I know that I know that I know that I know that I'm saved. And you better know, because when He comes, it'll be too late. Let's stand together. Thank you for being here tonight.